You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Kim with Boston Strongcast. Figured I'd do a podcast since Alyssa needs some things to do at this current point in time. Um, but I haven't done a podcast since I think the turn of the calendar year. I've kind of been working on some things, thinking of um, some changes to our programs, kind of analyzing and reassessing some things. And um, interestingly enough, Alyssa had asked me what I'm passionate about right now. So like when I when I try to like think of what I want to put on the internet, like on Instagram or whatever, it's basically, you know, I always had this like underlying theme of, I want people to like it so that they want to work with me and I can grow my business and stuff like that. And I think that works fine. And so, you know, you kind of arrange things accordingly, but I've always been more attracted to the skill acquisition side of things. I think this probably just comes from, you know, my time as an athlete, um, playing sports and just enjoying watching sports and seeing high level performance and stuff like that. And, um, I think it's just, it's always been there that, that passion for that. So one of the things that I'm going to start doing in a lot of our programs literally take into the skill acquisition aspect of things. That's where like dynamic systems theory comes from. That's where the constraints led conjugate idea comes from. Um, so I'm going to dive deeper into a lot of those aspects of it. And one thing that people might not even realize is our programs are set up so that they follow this type of skill acquisition framework, but it's a lot different than what I think people think. So I think in terms of powerlifting, when we think of developing skill, we view that as just like technique, like how good somebody's technique is with the lifts. And that's not entirely true. Um, I made this mistake. So when I first started adapting a more skill acquisition framework for a coaching plan, I kind of neglected some of the other other pieces of it, right? And, you know, don't get me wrong. When I first started, so the three years that I was under Shaco, so when you see his programs, about 80% of it is comp lift and comp lift variations and the other 20% is like GPP. So there's this huge focus on doing the competition lifts themselves to develop that technical efficiency within the lifts. Now the problem with that is, so when he was the Russian national team coach, those lifters came through a long-term athletic development system. So from the time that they were eight to 10 years old, they were doing GPP stuff and that GPP work made up 80% of the actual programs and only 20% was maybe grabbing a PVC pipe and doing some technical practice of the lifts. And as they came through this system, over time, those percentages ended up flipping, right? So the GPP work would go down and the sports specific work would increase eventually to the point where they completely flip. We're doing 80% sports specific work and 20% GPP. Now the problem is when I get into powerlifting, I wasn't lifting weights before. So I was doing the MMA stuff, you know, anywhere from three to six days a week, depending on where I was in my life. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of time to be doing a lot of stuff in the gym. So I still did like speed and agility stuff, some jumps, some 
you know, lunges and like I was lifting weights maybe twice a week, but I wasn't lifting weights. So I never really developed the GPP work that was necessary to probably be a good power lifter. So when I first started lifting on my first meet, I squatted 275 pounds as my opener and it was high. Like, and it wasn't an easy lift, you know? I ended up squatting, I think, 315 in that meet. Um, I had a decent deadlift just because I have good leverages to pull and stuff, but like, that's just, that's just where I was at. You know, at 190-ish pounds, I was squatting. That was my first ever three-plate squat. So I hadn't developed the GPP necessary to have a good, a very strong starting point within the sport of powerlifting. And then I focused a lot on the lifts and stuff. And so what's funny is one of my lifts came up today from a few years ago. And you can see my stance is very narrow. I'm wearing heels. I'm driving the knees forward to initiate the squat. That's not how I was taught to squat. I was taught that the hips should go back first and then you sit straight down. Um, and that you don't want the knees coming over the toes. And ideally, you don't want to come in too much past midfoot. And this is straight from Shaco himself. Um, most foreign experts agree with that. And I think um, there's a lot of powerlifting coaches that agree with that. It's just this, within the USAPL, it seems like shoulder width or slightly inside, knees driving forward type of squat seems to, to be the... Um, the go-to for, for coaches in that realm there, um, which I disagree with. But, um, you know, so I'm looking at my squat and it's like, I'm a lot of quads, right, from playing soccer, being on my toes a lot. My lower back could be stronger. My hips and hamstrings probably could be stronger. But I never really did a lot to address them. But Shaco put stuff in there for me to address that. The good mornings, the seated good mornings, the hyperextensions. Like there was a lot of a lot of low back, hamstring, and hip stuff as my accessories. It was predominantly all my accessories for the for the lower body stuff. But when you have 80% of the program being mapped out as the competition lifts, that's where probably 100% of my focus was a, was um, was on at the time as a lifter. I wasn't I wasn't taking the accessory work seriously enough just because it probably wasn't such a big part of my program for it to actually develop the areas that I needed for it to develop. But I was still doing it. And just like anything, in the beginning, just doing something, you get beginner gains. So doing the good mornings and, uh, you know, and all that stuff. I always hit PRs for the three years that I was with Shaco. But as a coach, I started thinking more towards comp lift, technique of the comp lifts, technique of the comp lifts. You know, and then I had realized that, oh shit, that's not really working that well, so we gotta lift heavier. So then it just completely switched from doing what we were doing before, which is, you know, more sets, less reps, probably lower RPEs per set, um, to let's just lift heavy all the time, then we get slower. Our technique kind of went the other way, even though we were putting more weight on the bar. But there's a breaking point, right? You can only outlift physics for so long. So you know, I've kind of come full circle and we kind of have a blend of everything now, but in terms of developing that, that technical efficiency, I was hyper-focused on just the lifts themselves. So I always had this, you know, if you go back far enough and I, I still don't think my words are incorrect here with the hypertrophy thing, how much is important. Right, so we have this correlation that a bigger muscle has stronger potential to contract. That may or may not be true, I don't know. Um, but if you think about it, 
you can build strength in the absence of hypertrophy, but you cannot, you cannot build strength in the absence of neural adaptations. So when I think of that statement, what ended up happening was for me is I would focus so hardcore on just having the right variations of the lifts. And then my next question about the accessory work was, well, if I just did leg curls, my squat's not going to get better. So how do I know that they actually work? Like how much of this stuff is dogma from, you know, basically the first power lifters were bodybuilders beforehand. So you have this, this dogma of bodybuilding, infiltrating powerlifting right off the bat. How much of this is dogma and how much of it is actually appropriate to building strength? So like when I'm thinking about it, it's like, oh, by themselves, it doesn't work. So how do I know that they actually work? And it just, I had a hard time understanding that a 90 pound leg curl is somehow going to correlate into a 500 pound squat. It just, in my head, it didn't make any sense. So when I started writing the programs, I was so focused on the lifts and using the right variations of the lifts and all of that stuff that I neglected the accessory work. And I'm glad I did. It probably wasn't great for people's totals, um, but it's the benefit of coaching. The majority of my lifters have been lifting for less than five years, so they're going to see beginner gains anyways. Um, but it's probably the benefit of coaching a group like that is I can make those mistakes and get away with them. So, But it also allowed me to kind of learn where that importance comes from for the for those accessory lifts. So you can get pretty good without focusing on it, right? Like if you focus on the lifts, you have the right attitude and you do the right things, you can have some pretty good success. I think a great example of this would be Kerry. So Kerry competed at three Arnold's, won a check at an Arnold, um, had two top 10 finishes at nationals. She did extremely well in the sport. And I think a lot of people within PPS really looked up to her as being an elite lifter, which she was. But the difference between a top 10 finish and a podium finish was me understanding this aspect of training. So because I neglected the accessories so much, I didn't attack her weaknesses in the best, most productive way possible. So yeah, she got, you know, that, as a 52 kilo lifter, squatting 300 pounds is very impressive. And she got very strong doing that. But I, I have this, if we had done things how we do now, really focusing on the weaknesses with the the good mornings and the accessory work and all of that stuff, how much better would she have been? I Honestly, I think that was the difference between a top 10 finish and a podium finish for Kerry. Um, but you live and you learn, right? And as a coach, with those, making those mistakes allows you to take the next lifter who's a top 10 lifter and get them into that podium spot. It's, it's how you keep progressing everybody moving forward. Um, so neglecting all, all of that for a while and it's like, man, I just, I don't understand how the accessories and this other stuff can really fit in um, to a training program. And I lost sight. So in the beginning, so Shaco had me do a ton of good mornings, seating and standing good mornings. And in the beginning, I programmed a lot of those things. But then I moved away from it, and I honestly don't even know why. I think it was just more a timing thing um, within training or an intensity thing just because we were lifting heavy so often. And then once you take them out for a while, you just kind of forget about them. And you don't bring them back in. Um, but yeah, so what I started to do is just like really try to understand from a more simplistic level skill acquisition, right? And when you think of, I mean, it's just like, it's just like when you're learning anything, right? You have this baseline understanding of things, but then to really truly understand the nuances takes time and it takes increased learning. So what I started 
I kept the same questions, right? Like, how can accessories work? So, like, when I asked Shaco, he had said, they don't work if you don't leave the main lifts in. So, you need to do the accessories and the main lifts. If you just did the accessories, obviously, it's not going to make your main lifts go up. So, he had said that they're reliant upon each other in order to, like, truly develop over time. And so, that's something that I've always, like, wrestled with to try to understand. And finally, so, like, in terms of skill acquisition, your brain's pre-planning stuff, right? So, you know, based off of certain initial conditions, your brain is going to pre-plan these, these motor strategies to execute a movement. You're going to execute the movement, and based off of the sensory feedback, the consequences of that sensory feedback, and the outcomes of the action, your brain's going to make some adjustments, adjustments to it. So there's your Bayesian um, mathematical model for movement for the most part, right? So those pre-planned strategies. Now this is where, uh, I don't know, you know, it's something that like you, you never think about and then all of a sudden you just, you know, whether you're smoking too much weed or whatever it is, you just get this thought that like pops in your head and it's like, fuck, how did I miss this in the first place? So with those pre-planned motor strategies, your brain's always kind of assessing the situation, right? So I don't know if it really works like this in the terms and how simplistic I'm going to make this sound, but I think it gets the point across. So when your brain is pre-planning these motor strategies, right? So if I am choosing to squat with a closer stance in heels, very knees forward, chances are I got very strong quads and I got a weak lower back, weak hips, weak hamstrings. Right, so I'm kind of just shifting everything forward, using the heels and in in those strengths to, to lift the max weight I want to lift. But as a coach, I firmly believe, like I said before, you can only outlift physics for so long. We do want to guide the lifter to squatting more comfortably with a wider stance. And when I say wider stance for raw lifting, just outside of shoulder width is all I'm looking for. I'm not looking for multiply wide and raw lifters. And I think that's what everybody like thinks I'm talking about. No, they should be able to lift in flats to keep that shin a little bit more vertical and be a little bit outside of the shoulders to control range of motion as much as possible. The shorter distance you have to lift the weight, the stronger you will be over time but it's very hard to develop that emergent behavior in somebody, especially in such a competitive field as powerlifting coaching, right? So if I have somebody who comes to me, so even if you take me, let's say, my old self squatting with that very narrow stance comes to my old self, comes to my new self uh, for coaching, and I make that person widen their stance, they're gonna squat less, right? And nobody wants to sign up to lift less weight. So there's that weird, all right, well, how do I do this then, right? And you want that behavior to emerge. You don't just want to try to force it, right? So I don't go to people and just be like, hey, you have to squat wider. We have this conversation of like, hey, you know, you have a really long, so Jess, Jay Birdie, she pulls the most weight with her heels together, together on the deadlift. You have the longest range of motion possible that's allowing you to lift the most weight possible now. That's only going to get you so far lifting like this. Now, she did a competition recently, hit a deadlift PR, and that's how she pulled it. She hit a big deadlift PR. I want to say it was at least seven and a half kilos. So it's not that I'm forcing them to lift sumo, right? I'm letting her pull with that long range of motion, but I need to develop a strategy to get her 
behavior to adapt to pulling with a shorter range of motion. That's on me as a coach to guide that emergent behavior, not to force that emergent behavior. So in terms of the squat, same thing. I'm not gonna force somebody to be wider, but I, I gotta push the system to adapt and have that behavior emerge. And I'll tell you, it takes a long time sometimes for that to happen. And sometimes it happens so gradually you can kind of see it, and other times it's just like, you know, you just, you pound away at things for an extended period of time. And I'm talking like a year or more. And then all of a sudden the person's just lifting how you want to see them lift. So like, I'm still trying to like figure out that whole process of how that emergent behavior just happens. And of course there's probably individualistic pieces to that whole thing. Now, so for me as a coach, if I want to have that occur, I need to, have a very good plan and a very strong understanding of skill of skill acquisition for this. And so before my understanding, not that it was limited, the information was the same, but I forgot about all of the experienced power lifters and their lessons that um, they, they brought. So the fact that when you ask any old power lifter how important accessory work and bodybuilding work is, they immediately tell you how important it is. They literally can't emphasize its importance enough in developing highest levels of strength that you can develop in somebody, right? But I was always looking at it as this one-to-one trade-off as, well, it's based off of hypertrophy, a bigger muscle having a stronger ability to contract, which may or may not be true. There's definitely um, some question marks there. Um, and also I had the question of, eh, how much of that is just dogma? But the fact that they all say it, I lost sight of that being relevant and that being important to the conversation I need to have with myself as a coach to be like, okay, they all say that this is important. There's something to this. How does it fit into my current thinking? And so finally, when I put my ego aside, and I realized, you know, I talk about, I've talked about this on previous podcasts, like you go through your angsty teenage phases where you're like, eh, my parents don't know fucking shit. I know everything. And then you kind of come back around and you're like, eh, shit, they knew a thing or two, right? So to come back around, the greater number of motor units and the more well-trained the motor units in a muscle group, the less noise in the system within that muscle group. So if I develop stronger hamstrings, by doing, you know, I'll do my squats or whatever, but then like good mornings and other hamstring isolation work, I can update my brain's pre-planning strategies for those lifts, right? But the lifter has to know where they're supposed to go with the movement. They need to be guided within the process of that movement itself and you need to develop the physical capacities of those angles in order for the brain to feel safe and confident to be able to move maximal weights under those scenarios. Because remember, sensory consequences and outcomes of the movement are extremely important. So if I just immediately took somebody and put them in the positions I want them and be like, hey, you have to squat here, and they fall over or they lift less, those consequences and those outcomes are going to work against me in the long term. They're probably gonna end up not keeping me as a coach under those circumstances. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bump the system. All right, and in order to do this, so let's say, let's say somebody has weak hamstrings and they, 
they have a, you know under max weights they don't sit back well in the squat and they don't have great stability in the hole now static low back strength is extremely important for that stability in the hole too but most of what we do kind of addresses that anyways um, and I'll kind of tie in that anyways so what we need to do in that case what I was doing before, all right, well, they're not sitting back well, so let's give them box squats. This part's right. So I'm giving them the right variation to work on that, um, that weakness. Now, the problem now becomes what happens when the weights get heavy. So what I learned over time is when you're trying to constrain the system, the amount of weight being lifted is a major component of the constraint, right? So under light weights, they can probably do it fine. Great. So we could build it up like that, but that takes a very long time to really do. And just lifting lighter weights doesn't necessarily have a great carryover to maximal weights, especially once you get the psychological components into it and the amount of force, right? So in complex systems, the initial conditions are extremely important to the outcomes, right? A small change in initial conditions can lead to large changes in outcomes. Okay, that's what complex systems, that's how that works. So when you change those initial conditions from being 70% of one RM to being max loads, that small change in initial conditions can have large changes in outcome, especially in pre-planned movement strategies. So if the body, the brain kind of knows it's not capable of sitting back, it's too scared to sit back because of previous sensory consequences or previous outcomes of doing those things, it's going to just revert back to what it was doing before. So you're gonna have a very hard time changing movement strategies just lifting light weights, just because that small change in initial conditions is going to have a big impact on those outcomes, especially based off of past experiences. Now, the argument to that might be, well, we can just build up those lighter weights over time. That can take a very long time to do. And that would require you to leave a certain exercise in there for a very prolonged period of time, which the law of accommodation says that this probably isn't gonna work in the long term. The other side of that coin, which we've done both, you can lift heavy, but the problem is, is as they lift heavy on that box squat, the knees start traveling forward a little bit more. Um, so they start going back to those patterns that we're, we're trying to kind of break down and build new ones at the same time, right? They're going back to those old strategies. Now, when you load it heavy, it further ingrains those strategies, right? So repetition plus load is how you create habits. And that's how, in a lot of cases, habits are very hard to break, and in a lot of cases, you're developing bad habits. So if you get somebody driving the knees forward like that, and that's not what you wanna see in the squat, which is not what I wanna see in the squat, I wanna see them sit back. If I'm putting load and repetitions on that poor strategy, I'm further ingraining that poor strategy. It becomes harder to break later on. So you can't just lift light weights to have it carry over to heavy weights, and you can't just take heavy weights and expect it to change because you put a box there. So you're running into this circumstance of this, what do you do? Right, so this is where you need to, obviously they need to be aware, right? And accountable for their actions. So they need to film their sets. This is where deliberate practice comes in, right? Hey, I need your stance a little wider on the box. I need your shins vertical. You gotta reach all the way back with your ass from start to finish of that eccentric motion. 
they need to be accountable, they need to film it, they need to focus on it, and they need to try to continue to make it better. But understand that errors are not necessarily a detriment in this case. But like I said, you gotta lift heavy. That's the name of the sport, and there's something that happens under heavier weights that doesn't under light weights. So you can do both. So we'll do max effort box squats, but sometimes they'll be in there for reps. And I'll get into how we structure training because you'll get both within a wave. But on top of that, hey, after this, you really need to build up these good mornings. And, you know, I've had people who squat 500 pounds, but they're doing less than 200 pounds for sets of good mornings, and it's really hard to even get that much weight. All right, we really need to build this up. And it's not just you put this in for a wave. We put it in for a macro cycle retest and see. And you should start to see certain things develop over that macro cycle period. And our macro cycles are four to six months. Typically, if they don't have a meet planned, it's six months. And more often than not, it ends up being six months. So for six months, we need to build that up. So if you can only get 200 pounds on a good morning now, and you're a 500 pound squatter, we need to, you should be doing reps with the upper 300s, mid to upper 300s. That's our fucking goal over the course of the next period of time. So build it up. We'll use different bars, concentric only, different stances, whatever we have, chains, bands. I don't typically, we've done some like front, front facing bands for good mornings and stuff like that, but I tend to use chains more than I use bands. Why, I don't know but I think it beats you up less. So we got to really build that up, build up those weaknesses. But on top of that, we need to, after we're done with those, you need to hit those hamstrings, hit some leg curls, hit some reverse hypers really hard. You need to really start developing those areas so that your brain is aware of those areas, aware of the strength of those areas, and they're capable of carrying their load within those bigger lifts. And when you start putting everything together, you start to see emergent behavior that you're looking for, but it does take time and you gotta be patient, you gotta stay the course because it gets really easy to abandon ship because you know some of the lifts might be going down when they're in this like behavioral transition period. When they're, I have a lifter now who's competing um, on the 21st and his back used to start round and then get even more round as he initiated the pull to the point where his legs were almost straight by the time the bar is breaking the floor. But now his back's still a little bit round when he's getting set up, but it holds its shape for the most part. There's still a little bit of change, but it's so minor that like you have to look closely to be able to see it, but he's lifting less weight, right? But we're seeing progress. We're seeing the back hold its shape because the ceiling of pulling with a rounded back and straight knees by the time it breaks the floor is very low. So in this case, we're seeing his absolute strength go down, but we're seeing a progress in positions. So it's only a matter of time while this is transitioning for him to get stronger at these angles for it to surpass what it was before. The good news is, is he's hit squat and bench PRs. So we have those small wins to look forward to. Um, but so this is where like, I'm willing to take a step back as long as you're seeing that progress in those angles. And then you gotta analyze the strengths and weaknesses of the lifter still. So yeah, his back is now holding shape, right? So that's good. We see greater back strength, but his hips and his hamstrings, they've obviously gotten stronger because they're allowing the back to hold its strength. Because if your hips and hamstrings are weak off the floor, your back will round to shorten the moment arm to kind of take some more pressure off the back so it can get it moving. And that's a hard re-extend at the top. It's a very long lift also. So what we're doing 
what we're seeing there is we're seeing this transitional process is just not there at me time. So he's going to deadlift a little bit less. But it's not the end of the world, right? Because we are seeing progress as long as you communicate that well. They, they understand that on the other end of that is a nice PR um, on, that, on that lift. But it does. Sometimes it takes a while to have that happen because there are these transitional periods. Um, and these transitional periods, they're, they're tough sometimes. Um, mentally on the lifter, and they have to be willing to go through those periods. Um, but it's up to the coach to communicate it and make sure that they understand those things. So you can't just abandon ship because you see numbers going down because it's such a short-term viewpoint sometimes that what you can end up doing is you abandon ship and then you don't really get the progress and technique and they end up just kind of getting stuck somewhere else very close to where they were before. So in that case, when I'm looking at that lifter, we're seeing strength increases, right? His squat's blowing up, his bench is blowing up. So he's getting stronger. We're just kind of stuck in this transitional period with the deadlift. If all the numbers were going down, you know, that's a different conversation and stuff. It's very rare that happens. I mean, sometimes it works the other way around. The squat kind of goes backwards, but the deadlift's blowing up, right? So you're seeing these these increases in strength. So it's it's not necessarily that like, you know, I think in a lot of cases, if you do see all three lifts go down, which is very rare, I don't even, can't really think of many uh, situations where that's happened. But if you see all, it's probably more of a recovery thing. Um, than anything else because you know to maintain strength you get a lift twice a week for 30 to 40 minutes it's very easy to maintain strength you don't get weaker from actually training so that's just a different conversation right so you need to understand that adaptation and that emergent behavior it self-organizes right it's not on your timeline if you have a macro cycle of six months it's not on your timeline. That stuff happens on its own timeline. And there's so many feedback loops that go into that in order for that to actually occur. So you can't force the time period. You gotta just kind of let it emerge, let it, let the system self-organize itself. But I think what a lot of people do is they take that emergent behavior and self-organization piece and they think you can just let the lifter just run with it and do whatever they want and they'll organize into the best way for them. That's not true. Typically, people develop bad habits for a reason. Beginners start out doing something a certain way because it fits their current movement strategy model. And nobody as a beginner is, is elite. It, it takes having good guidance and good coaching to get to that point. So I think a lot of people run with the idea of emergent behavior and just they have a poor understanding of what it actually means. Um, you know, that's why having a good qualified coach that truly understands that to guide that process um, is appropriate. So one of the things that I think in the skill adaptation, skill acquisition field that we miss the mark on as coaches is holding lifters accountable. It's all about us. It's all about our spreadsheets and it's all about volumes and intensities and mixing those um, the volumes and intensities, mixing those numbers up so the lifter can recover more. They can, um, you know, we just have these these spreadsheets that allow us to adjust the variables, and it's on us whether they're doing things right or they're not doing things right. Where we never really, as coaches, hold them accountable for their actions. 
So in order to do this, there has to be training strategies in place to hold them accountable and engage them within the training process themselves. So Shaco calls out of his lifters students, right? And I think this is great because that's exactly what a lifter should be. They should be a student and the coach is the teacher. And the coach is setting up this learning environment for the lifter to explore, to learn, to screw up, to learn, to be engaged, and to get better. And it's required in order for high-level progress. But what happens when you get, when you think everything is on the program, you're not engaged. You just think by checking a box and just going through the process of doing these things that you'll get better. You'll get better, and you'll achieve world-class status just like whatever your favorite lifter that does the same program has done, but that's, that's not the case. You'll get, you'll develop skills up to a certain point and then it'll stop. So in order to be engaged in the training process, there has to be some type of immediate feedback. There has to be some type of focus. And it can't just be, I will say, I think one benefit of having RPE in a program is it just makes the lifter aware of how hard it feels, right? So they're at least paying attention in that aspect of it so that they can feel how hard a lift feels. They're at least paying attention, right? They're not just checking a box. So one of the benefits of doing a lot of variation within training is that variation forces the lifter to be aware of what they're doing, right? If, you're, if you've never done a safety squat bar box squat with bands before, it's gonna be awkward at first. It's going to force you to pay attention. And the first time you do stuff, or if you don't do stuff that regularly, right? Like we might do box squats a lot, but we're changing certain variables at times. So if you haven't done something frequently enough, you just, you have to pay attention because it's different. And so that first week, they'll come in, they'll do a max effort lift of a new variation in the wave. So let's say it's that, right? The safety squat bar box squat bands or something. And they get to a certain number and they're looking at it and they see the breakdown. And then we will pick the number one biggest thing to focus on. And so week two, when they come in, they focus on that one aspect and just really hammer it home so that they're fully engaged in that piece of it and trying to make it better. But let's say we're doing 75% for five sets of four of that previous max effort lift. So we're giving them a certain intensity, a certain number of reps. They're filming their sets. They're paying attention, trying to make each rep better, trying to feel each rep, trying to make each set better. And then they take what they learned in that session and we come in week three and we try to beat what we did week one by five pounds. Now there's smoke and mirrors in this too, because in week one, I tell them to leave five to 10 pounds out there on the bar. So think of like a hard second, easy third attempt. So there's room to improve come week three. So this is just some like built-in motivation, right? Because we need that motivation in order for deliberate practice to actually like really embed itself into forming like new, new myelin within our brains to make our movement strategies more efficient, stronger, everything else. So they come in week three, they hit that five pound PR, they get that momentum, they've been engaged within the training process, being in the moment, making adjustments, being aware, focusing on that process, not necessarily so much on those external outcomes. And because of that added in motivation, you're setting up the ability to drive skill adaptation over a longer period of time. 
Um, and that's how our programs are set up. Now, as we get closer to it, there's phases within this. So I do remove deadlift max efforts from phase one, and we get less max effort lifts in that phase. But the squat and the bench rotate like they do, and then they'll get deadlift technique work, and we'll still work on something. They'll be engaged in the training process like that. And it's all upper lower at that point. Phase two, we'll start throwing in deadlift max effort lifts on day three, and then they'll squat and deadlift on day four. So you get a more higher frequency stuff. Um, little bit of an increase in volume in the competition lifts, but not a ton. Little bit increase in max effort lifts. And then phase three as a competition nears, we get max effort lifts in the squat and bench weekly, and then the deadlift still rotates every week. So you get a lot more like sports-specific work. So we're just taking, hey, it is what it is right now. I need you to focus on just competing, getting after, and really just putting everything together. And then we'll hit our competition lifts. We'll reanalyze them, and we'll kind of repeat the process. So from a skill adaptation aspect, they're engaged, they're forced to focus, to pay attention, to pick one thing to work on. If you're not, so if you're utilizing a program with RPEs, you're focusing on how hard it is, which can be good or bad. I think it can work for you, it can work against you, but at least it's making you aware of something. But if you have no technique things to work on and no direction of where to put the accessory work, what I think you end up getting is just a lot of high frequency programs of comp lifts that you're doing five to six days a week. They're shorter workouts, so from a skill acquisition aspect, those shorter workouts of 30 to 40 minutes are probably better in terms of repetition because you're focused, you're fresh, and all those things. If you have the right mindset going in to work on something, that can probably be pretty beneficial and can probably work in the long run. But for the majority of people just trying to check a box, it's only going to work for so long, and then you'll start getting banged up. Um, and if you're not developing weaknesses, like if your lower back is a weak spot in the squat, you'll only be able to squat as much as the lower back can handle. At some point, there's a breaking point and either performance stalls or slides backwards a little bit or you get hurt. So, you know, deliberate practice requires you to make errors, to analyze weaknesses, to attack those weaknesses with attention and focus. And if you're not doing those things in training, you know, there's a reason why the majority of people who do this sport will be average, even though every single person has the capability to be above average. Not everybody has the capability to win a world championship, but everybody has the capability to be above average. At the end of the day, we're all human built of the same shit. So if you're not doing those things in training, you're probably going to end up with average outcomes. But you go on the internet and you just see the 1% doing the same program and winning world championships, and you immediately go to, oh, I need to do that program because it works for that person, it'll definitely work for me. And this is where like having appropriate coaching and guidance along the way is extremely important. Um, but for now, you can follow along with this stuff. I've been posting more about this. I'm putting up more videos on YouTube. I have a deliberate practice one up there now. Um, the Precision Powerlifting is the YouTube channel, so subscribe to that. Um, I'll try to put up stuff weekly on there. I have some like different exercises and stuff too, but I'll be posting about this stuff quite a bit um, on my personal page, which is KWCAN and our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston.